This is the Life Church Podcast. For more messages, to watch our live stream, or to find other events, go to lifechurchnow.org. Amen. We're going to continue on in the series Uncommon we've been in. Um, we're going to be looking at First Thessalonians chapter 4, where Paul is going to challenge us on how we live. And uh, he's going to call us to continually grow in Christ, that there is, as followers of Jesus Christ, there's this uncommon lifestyle that we oftentimes embrace. And there's this uncommon power that actually enables us to live this uncommon lifestyle. We're going to kind of go there. But let me just recap a little bit for a second. Um, in Acts 17, the Apostle Paul goes to a city called Thessalonica to basically preach the gospel. He starts a church there. The church is very, very young, very new in the Lord. There's a mostly made up of Gentiles. If you see, I've got a map here right in the middle, what is Macedonia is current day Greece. Over here is Italy. You have what is current day Turkey, but back then it was called Asia Minor. And right in the middle there is Thessalonica up there by Philippi and Berea. So when you read in Acts 17 about that, you can see that he, after that he went on to, I think it's Berea, right after he went on to Berea, but he had just come from Philippi. And so this is his missionary journey. Paul goes to Thessalonica, starts his church, and he's excited because this church begins to grow. And there's these, uh, there's these uh, Gentile believers, meaning non-Jewish believers, people who were not Jewish by descent. They, these Gentile believers begin to jo- join this church. There's also some Jews that are part of this church. And, and it's you know, it's very young, very, very, very young church. So Paul is like teaching them and encouraging them. But this mob shows up and basically forces Paul out of Thessalonica. And Paul ends up having to leave Thessalonica in a hurry. He doesn't say, get to say goodbye to these young believers. He's not able to finish his teaching with them or training of these new believers. And so he's a little bit discouraged by that. About a, you know, as the months pass, he's concerned about them. Because Thessalonica is a tough place to live out your faith. Some of you might say, yeah, this world is a tough place to live out my faith. And it's true. But especially Thessalonica was a very difficult place. It was a large city, about 100,000 people, which for that time period was a very large city. Um, it was a city that was very hedonistic in, in its culture. Um, they worshipped idols, and one of the ways in which they, they would do their worship is that they would worship these idols by drinking wine and participating in, in orgies, sexual orgies. And that was, that was the culture of the day. It was a very difficult place for new Christians to try to live out their faith, and Paul knows this. He knows that he's had very little time to teach them. He knows that he's had very little ability to be an example to them, and so he's concerned because of their culture. Their culture was a culture of pleasure. That was the ultimate goal, was personal self-pleasure. And when pleasure's your goal, then people become commodities. When pleasure's your purpose, greed is what motivates you. Desires dominate you. Selfishness defines you. In fact, when pleasure's your purpose, oftentimes indulgence will destroy you. So Paul's concerned for them. He can't go back. He wishes he could go back. He wishes he could hang out with these young believers and try to help them to grow in Christ, but he can't. And so he sits down and he starts writing a letter to them. And that's what we're looking at today. We're looking at 1 Thessalonians, the letter that he wrote 2,000 years ago to these young believers in Thessalonica. In chapters 1 through 3, he tells them that he loves them, that he's committed to them. Then in chapter 4, he kind of shifts his tone a little bit. He begins to, uh, to warn them about a few things. You know, he's challenging them to live out their faith. 
in this difficult city. Now, what I want you to understand here as we jump into this is sometimes as we talk about things of the, you know, cities and places of the past, it's easy for us to think, well, that's then. You know, it's easy to think that's not us. You know, it's just nice story, Rich, about what's going on back then. Thank you. Um, But what I need you to understand here is that what Thessalonica was then is what we are today. So our culture and Thessalonican culture are very similar. There's a lot of parallels to it, and we're going to explore that today. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1, he says, As for other matters, excuse me, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you on how to live in order to please God. As in fact, you are living. Paul says, I can see that you're living in a way that pleases God. I'm so thankful for that. I'm so glad that you're doing that. And he uses a little phrase, how to live in order to please God. You need to understand something. That a big portion of the New Testament is dedicated in teaching us on how to live in order to please God. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that should be something that you're very thoughtful about, that you're very concerned for, that is a part of your life, that you are, you're thinking about how is it that I should live my life in a way that pleases God. And if, if you're not, if, you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, but you're not thinking about that, then maybe you need to ask some other questions about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. He goes on. Verse uh, 1 and 2, he says, Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do more, to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, Look, you're on the path, and I'm very thankful for that, but you haven't got there yet. Like Paul knows that they're young believers, Paul knows that they live in a very hedonistic city. Paul knows that they are fighting not only against the realities of their city, but they're fighting against a a culture that has been just predominating their thinking and their way of life. And he knows that there's a lot of challenges in front of them, and so he wants to encourage them and challenge them at the same time and say, listen, you're on the path. I'm so glad you're on the path, but you're not there yet. And so he uses this phrase more and more. It's this idea of increase. That when you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you should increasingly be living in a way that pleases God. Bible word for that is sanctification. That the longer we're Christians, the longer we, the longer we look more and more like Jesus. I mean, that's, that's, that's reality for us, right? Now, I've been a Christian for 30-something years now, and and I sometimes don't, I look at myself, I'm not sure how much I look like Jesus, but I hope that I look a lot more like Jesus today than I did 30-something years ago. It's called sanctification. It's this process of growing and becoming more and more like Christ. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in us as we submit ourselves to him. It happens over a period of time. It just doesn't happen overnight. It's this process of becoming more and more like Christ. I hope that that becomes part of your language in your prayer heart, in, in your prayer as you're praying. Part of your prayer is to say, "Lord, I want more and more to be like you. I want more and more to be like you." This is what Paul is encouraging these Thessalonians to do: is to be more and more like Christ. 
Then in verse three, he says, it is God's will. Now, I want us to stop here and not read ahead because I'm not sure that you really want to know what is God's will. Okay? God's will is probably one of the most common questions I'm asked. In fact, this morning I had a question. Somebody asked me, and I know it's not usually explicit. Like, they don't come and say, hey, Rich, I need to know God's will for my life. That's not how they say it typically. Typically it's, hey, I've got this choice, and I've got this choice. I really don't know what I need to do. Do you have any insight? Can you speak to the choices that I have in front of me? And essentially, that is a question of what is God's will for my life? And oftentimes, I can point to verses in the Bible that say, hey, this is what the Bible, the direction the Bible gives us. Sometimes it's not clear, as clear as that. Sometimes the choices that are in front of you are both good choices, both biblically supported choices. And you're trying to understand which way, which direction should I go. And so we're asking God's will. What I know is true about me and sometimes probably true about all of us is that when we ask the question, what is God's will, we're very careful with that question. Like, I only really want to know God's will if it's something I really want, right? Like, I'll never ask God, God, do you want me to give $10,000 to that person? Because I don't really want to know that will. That's not true. I should pray that prayer. But you get what I'm saying? We're very selective about, about wanting to know God's will. And oftentimes what we do is we, we, we ask it when it's safe. We ask it when we've already got some, some preset um, options that are already like, they're, like, like we give God, these are the options, like this option and this option, this option. What do you think, God? That's kind of how we approach God with, with the will of God. And, and then we can, we can massage the text a little bit to kind of help us land on where at the end of the day, man, it's God's will for me to marry that beautiful person or whatever, you know. That's where we go with that. Well, Paul's going to give us God's will as it relates to an area of life where we often don't want to know the will of God. Verse 3, is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality? You're like, okay, great. Greek word here for sexual immorality is the word pornea. It's where we get the word pornography from. It's this blanket term that covers pretty much all kinds of sexual sin. It would be defined as any kind of sexual gratification that takes place outside of marriage between a husband, outside of a marriage between a husband and a wife. And Paul says it's God's will that you avoid sexual immorality. Steer clear from it. This is God's will for your life. Now, the idea that God would have some kind of say over our bodies, or over our sexuality, just kind of, you know, culture, we're not comfortable with that, are we? In fact, in, increasingly in our culture, we're less and less comfortable with any kind, of, any kind of dictates upon how we should live our sexual lives. And if this is true for us now, it was especially true for the Thessalonians back, back in the day, because they had been taught that their body was for pleasure. It was all about pleasure, right? I mean, these Christians, these young Christians in Thessalonica, they, they're battling this idea that all their life they've been taught it's for pleasure, and now God is speaking to them about refraining from sexual immorality. 
You see, the Thessalonians had this dualistic approach to life. It comes from, stems from this thing called Gnosticism. It's kind of a, a worldview, a cosmology of sorts that you could see how you see God and all these kind of things. And so they had this idea of dualism that, that body and spirit are in many ways disconnected from each other. That they don't have, they, you know, they don't, they don't influence each other. And these Thessalonians had been taught that what they, what they were physically was not at all connected to the rest of their life. That they could do whatever they wanted to do with their body and it shouldn't have any impact upon them spiritually, emotionally, relationally, or any other way. It's only physical. And Paul comes along and says, uh-uh. That's not how you should think as a Christian. That's not how you, think, you should think as a follower of Jesus Christ. They are connected. In fact, everything, Paul would say, everything belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. It's all spiritual is how God would say it, or Paul would say it. And so if you come to church and you have a dualistic approach to life, you might think that how you handle your money, your sexuality, your marriage, has nothing to do with your relationship with God. And Paul would challenge that notion. Somehow that that we think that the spiritual part of us is somehow disconnected from all the other parts of our life. And Paul says, no, that's not it at all. You see... Becoming a follower of Jesus is about beginning a journey of passionate spirituality with him. It's about beginning a journey of transformation. So when you, as Wayne earlier prayed, and we we whispered a prayer, just know that that's the very beginning. You're just starting. You haven't arrived yet. And in this journey, there's this transformation that begins to happen. Our old ways of thinking get affected. Our our ways of doing things get affected because of a relationship that we have with God and with Jesus Christ. One of our values here at Life Church is passionate spirituality. This is how it goes. It's never too late to become who you might have been. We value spending our life. We value spending our lives in the transformational pursuit of God. It's the predominating theme of everything we talk about here. When I get up here to preach, when we do classes, whatever we do, the idea is we're hoping that you're moving along in the journey, that day by day you're transforming, that day by day the Holy Spirit is changing your life. That's really what we're all about. And so Paul here, he's talking about this. He says, look, sex is just not physical. It's not just physical. You see, God is the architect of it. And the way he designed it, he designed to be directly connected to who we are spiritually and in our relationships. He designed it to bond a couple together in marriage. So when two people come together as husband and wife, they come together not just physically, but they come together spiritually as well. They're one. In fact, in fact, there's a, there's a, a, you know, there's these, neurochemicals that, that move in our brain, you know, when, they're, when we're in having intimacy with another person, oxytocin and vasopressin, that actually, I think that's right, doctors in here, sorry, I, I just crossed the line into a realm that I don't know very much about, I just read about it, so, okay, but ev- evidently, these things get released when, during intimacy, and they emotionally attach people, they bond people to each other, so Paul's going to give us some reasons why. In fact, that's why Paul talks about this as being the will of God, that we 
abstain or avoid sexual immorality because there's this bonding that occurs. He's gonna give us some very specific reasons why. The first one is that controlling your body is honorable. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse four. He says, each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Now, the word body here is the word vessel, v, like, you know, like, a, like a ship or a, a plane, a vessel. So you can think of it like that, like an airplane with a pilot, right? And so a pilot understands the vessel, when he understands how the vessel's been designed, when he knows what the capabilities are of the vessel, then the pilot is able to fly that vessel. The pilot is able to, you know, he's able to utilize the vessel in a proper way. You ever, I don't know if you ever watched these uh, acrobatic flying shows, you know, where these planes, these pilots, they do these crazy stunts, you know, spinning and diving and all kinds of really crazy things. The reason why they're able to, is at that moment, what these pilots are doing is that they're honoring the design of the vessel. They know exactly what the capabilities are of that vessel, and they're honoring it. And in honoring it, they're able to do all these amazing feats. But as soon as they begin to dishonor the design of the vessel, it becomes disastrous, doesn't it? As soon as they think, you know what? I know the plane can't take this, but I'm going to push it. That's what happens, right? And so when we control our bodies, our bodies, and we align our bodies in a way that, that has been designed by God. It honors the vessel and it honors the designer. Like if you drive a car and you land it in a lake, you can't get out of that car and be mad at the car because it won't float. It wasn't designed for that, right? And so God is the designer of our bodies. He's the architect of sexuality. He knows how things work for us. And when we control them according to his will, we're honoring the design. Another thing that Paul talks about here is that sexual immorality is evidence of not knowing God. Verse 4, he says, each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable. Not, so there's makes a comparison here, not in the passionate lust that, like the pagans who do not know God. In other words, he kind of excuses the pagans. Like it's, see, they do it because, why do they do it? Well, because they don't know God. People who do not know God, that's how they're going to act. But you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And since you know God, it should result in sexual purity. It should result in avoiding sexual immorality. Now, he's, saying, he's not saying knowing about God like many of us know about God. He's talking about knowing God, having this passionate pursuit of God. Another thing Paul talks about is that sexual immorality hurts others. Verse 6 <clears throat> He says, in this, no, no one, in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. That word take advantage is this, is this word to be translated defraud, like to defraud something. When it comes to, to sexual immorality, no one should defraud one another is what Paul is telling us here, right? This defraud is this idea of promising something that you can't deliver or having no intentions of delivering. delivering. That's fraud, Right? Y'all, we know what fraud is. Paul says we should not defraud others. So sexual immorality, whether we mean it or not, is defrauding another person. We're promising something that we cannot deliver outside of the context of marriage. Paul says don't take advantage of other people. I read this uh, Washington Post, which is the Washington Post, by the way. This is them. It's not even a Christian, you know, usually very other direction. They had a, 
an article called Divorcing Sex from Love hasn't made sex more fun, has not made sex more fun. And what they did is they, they researched hundreds and hundreds of people and asked questions, people who had been involved in, in, in uncommitted sex. That's basically what the, the, the research was about. And discovered that of these hundreds and hundreds of couples that responded and who had been involved in uncommitted sex, 70, let me see, 78% of the women and 72% of the men who had committed, who had been in uncommitted sex reported feelings of regret. That despite, despite what culture was telling them, despite what, what is so commonly just used and, and abused in our culture, still, at the end of the day, they walked into it will, willingly, at the end of the day, they expressed regret. It says that the article said that men felt they had used or taken advantage of another person. Women felt like they had been taken advantage of. Paul says, don't take advantage of another person by, se- by being sexually immoral. Don't do that, right? It's not harmless. Just because it's consenting, it's not harmless. It brings damage. Brings damage to the person you're not just to the person you're with, but it brings damage to their future spouse or their or their or their current spouse. Brings damage to their kids. It is not harmless. It hurts other people. In fact, multiple generations of people can feel hurt from a few moments of sexual pleasure. Okay, Paul goes on. Um, he goes on and tells us that God punishes the sexually immoral. You know when I. I put this in my notes, and I, and I thought, this is the thought that went through my head when I put this in my notes. People are going to wonder, who's up there preaching? <laughs> like, does he ever talk like that? Like, God's going to punish you, you know? You're going down, you know? <laughs> but I guess I put it in there for my sake. It says in verse 6, the Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. Because I've been sexually immoral. In fact, every one of us in this room at some point of our life have been sexually immoral. And I know that when you hear me say that, you're saying, well, wait a minute, Rich. No, no, not me. I haven't been. What are you talking about? I mean, maybe a few thoughts here and there, but I've not been. And I think the reason we're able to justify ourselves is because we compare ourselves with Thessalonica. We compare ourselves with the wider culture. And we look at how debased it is and we think, well, no, I've not been that bad. But all of us, all of us are in this category. All of us need the forgiveness that is offered by the gospel. That's why the gospel is such good news. Are you hearing me? That's why the gospel is such good news that Jesus comes in and he takes our sins away. He washes us clean. He presents us before God without blemish. He goes to the cross so that you and I can have a relationship with our heavenly father and now he casts our sexual immorality, he casts it as far as the east is from the west. That's what he does. He forgives us of our sin completely and you don't have to walk around with shame or with guilt if you're in Christ because he has forgiven you. It's 
why does Paul particularly make this connection between God's punishment and sexual and, and the sexually immoral? I think in large part is because it was so prevalent in that culture. I mean, it was just there. It was everywhere, right? I mean, it would have been easy for the Christians there to feel like, really, Paul? I mean, is there really a problem with this? I mean, everybody is doing You know how many times I've heard that? When I sit down with somebody, somebody's talking to me about stuff, and, and I'm thinking, okay, I need to tell you something. This is not right. This is not consistent with what the Bible teaches. It's often followed up, but I know, but everybody, everybody is doing it. And I'm sure that's how they felt as they're reading Paul's words. They're like, are you kidding me? I mean, we've been taught since kids that this is okay. And now you're telling me we can't do this? Maybe some of them felt like they were missing out. Are you sure, Paul? Are you sure, Paul, that what you're telling us is really what, what God is saying, or is it just you? Are, are you? Is it just your convictions? Is it the way you feel about things? And so Paul's like, look, this matters to God. It matters in, in this area of your life. It really matters because there's consequences. There are natural consequences that are built in to this area of life. I think another reason Paul highlights this is because sexual sin can be, can be so damaging to a person and to a community, for that matter. I mean, all sin is sin, right? All sin is really equal. All sin requires the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. All sin requires us to repent and come to him for forgiveness. All sin requires the grace of God poured into our life. All sin is equal, but not all consequences are equal. Think of it this way. There's a six-year-old boy, and that six-year-old boy's been told, listen, there's this cookie jar, gooey, nice, warm chocolate chip cookies. Do not eat from this cookie jar. And he's a six-year-old boy, of course. So as soon as a dad turns his back, six-year-old boy walks up, grabs a cookie out of the cookie jar, and eats it. He sins. A little bit later in the day, he's walking through the house, maybe with some stink, cookie, you know, a little bit of cookie crumbs around his mouth, you know, some chocolate chip kind of on his face. And he's walking around, he sees dad's car keys, and he grabs dad's car keys, goes to the car, gets in the car, cranks it up, and drives through the neighborhood. I mean, this kid is having a bad day of disobedience. I mean, this kid is just, he's, he's going crazy, right? Now, both of those things are disobedience. Both of them are sin, but the consequences for those things are probably going to be very different, right? Like, it's not a big deal to eat a chocolate chip cookie, but it is a big deal for a six-year-old to be driving a car through the neighborhood. Not only is he in danger, but everybody else is in danger. I think that's why Paul is saying, this is so important, guys, you need to hear me. Because the consequences to this are a lot more severe than a lot of other areas of our life. Verse 7, Paul says, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject human beings, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. People read this and like, yeah, but, I mean, that was 2,000 years ago. That was 2,000 years ago. It was back then. We're a lot more progressive now. We have a lot more insight. We got nuances in Greek that we can read into and maybe even change and twist a few little things around because after all, you know, that was then. This is today. And so Paul is like, okay, just to be clear, this is not me. This is not my opinion. 
This is not me trying to tell you, you know, hey, I, this is how I feel about certain things. Paul's saying, this is God speaking. This is God who's saying these things, right? And then he kind of concludes this whole sentence. Here's, I want to get to my point here. But Paul concludes this, and, he, and he, you have to understand that Paul's heart is not to just beat up on those young Christians in Thessalonica. His heart is to help them to become more and more like Jesus. So I like how he ends it. He says, the very God who gives you the Holy Spirit. He's reminding us that there is a power, an uncommon power we have to live this uncommon lifestyle. And it comes from the Holy Spirit. Paul's not calling us to a standard of living that is impossible. And I know that some of you might be here right now, you may be feeling like, it's just rich. I don't know how in the world this is even possible. Everybody's doing it. It's all around. How can this be? I want you to imagine your heart to be like a boardroom, like a CEO kind of boardroom, right? That in this boardroom, you know, you have the big white board, you know, and you have this gigantic conference table. Around this conference table are many seats, you know, and you have different board members that would sit around this. But imagine it's your heart. So it's your heart. So around this boardroom, this board, this conference table, you have the seat, for example, of uh, your career self. You have your, your, your financial self around this table. You have your relationships self around this table. You have your families, your, like your children's. You know, that, that there's, sometimes we have a different category for that. We have all these seats around the table. And I think oftentimes what we think is when we ask Jesus into our heart, what we're doing is we're asking the Holy Spirit to come into our life and to take a seat at the table. But you need to understand something. The Holy Spirit doesn't do well with committees. We think that the Holy Spirit comes into our life and he basically becomes one of a vote in my heart that somehow or another I could just consult the Holy Spirit and yeah you know what uh, you know what the, the rest of me out, outvotes you Holy Spirit so we're not going to do that that's not how it works see the idea of surrender we use the word surrender when we talk about giving our life to Christ the idea of surrender is that you're basically allowing the Holy Spirit to come into your life and here's what the Holy Spirit does he walks into your heart and he says okay all of you board members you're fired <laughs> you're out of here you don't, you don't have a say anymore. From this point on, I am the say. I'm the one leading you, directing your life. It's about surrender. I think Paul talks about this. And like us today, I think the reason why is because the reason why we struggle with sexual immorality is because we Holy Spirit hasn't been consulted because we haven't really surrendered at all. We've surrendered parts of our life, but not all of it. So Paul says, hey, guys, I know. I know this is hard language, but you got to understand something. God, God is serious about this. There's something very deep and profound that happens when we live lives that are sexually immoral. It affects every area of our life. And because of that, just don't do it. I realize that you're sitting here and you're thinking, man, Rich, that's easy for you to say. It's hard. And I realize that this sermon today, you might be thinking, why? 
Gosh, man, that's harsh. Here's what you need to understand. Grace. I wrote in big, you guys can see, right? Grace, right? I wrote in big letters in my, in my notes here. And I point an arrow. This is not about condemnation. It's not about beating you up. At the very beginning of the chapter, remember, he calls these Thessalonians to live a life that's more and more and more like Christ. And that's really the journey for all of us. It's this transformational pursuit. So the challenge for us today is not to say, okay, how much sexual immorality is in my life? If there is any, it needs to go. That's not the challenge. The challenge for us today is to say, how much of our life, how much of my heart am I going to surrender to Jesus? That's really the challenge. So I ask you to stand. We're going to pray. We're not going to sing the song now, but the song that we were going to sing is, this is how we fight our battles and this idea that that God is the Holy Spirit comes in our life and he helps us fight the battles listen this battle this battle that of what we're talking about sexual immorality and this I know it's such a strong term this battle you can win this battle you can win this battle, but you're not going to win it on your own. You're going to win it through the power of the Holy Spirit in your life and by connecting to other people and living lives of authenticity with other people. So what I want to do this morning is I'm going to pray. Our prayer team is going to be here in left and right. If you're here this morning, you like prayer, even if it's around this, this idea, I encourage you to come and pray with them. Um, or, if, or if not, it could be about something completely different. I encourage you to come pray with them. But I want to pray, and here's the prayer that I want to pray. I want to pray a prayer of surrender. All of us in this room say, okay, God, up to this point, this is where I've been. Some of you have gotten to a certain point in your life and you're saying, okay, I'm really, I'm living free from all this stuff, really. I'm doing well. You might feel that way about yourself, and that's great. I'm so glad. You still have an opportunity to say, God, but I surrender my life to you because this is a transformational pursuit that lasts all of our lives. There's others of you in this room that you're not like, okay, you just heard Pastor Rich talk about a lot of things that maybe it's true to you. This is where you're at. You can come to that juncture in your life and say, God, I surrender. I surrender. And at that point, there's no condemnation. There's no guilt. There's none of that. It's gone. Now, it's still a journey. It's still a journey of more and more. But it starts with surrender. I surrender my heart to you, Jesus. I surrender all of my heart. Amen. Let's pray. Father, This morning, we thank you, God, that you, actually, Lord, you are speaking to many hearts in this room. There are many of us in this room, Father, that are feeling the challenge to surrender. And so, Father, as a collective, as a community today, we just surrender our lives to you, Jesus. We 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 surrender our lives to you, Jesus. Father, will you bring the transformational power into our lives of the Holy Spirit? God, will you separate us from the things that are causing us to fall away? God, will you draw us closer to you? Father, will we make decisions today that are going to impact the rest of our lives? Will you help us to surrender our lives to you, Father? I thank you, God, for what you're doing in this place. I pray, God, that you will speak and you will bring power, an uncommon power, into every life in this place. In Jesus' name.